Take your Bible, please, and meet me in the book of Jonah. And as we continue in the book of Jonah, I want to begin with questions, including a somewhat personal question. Feel free to answer if you'd like, or just keep the answers to yourself, whichever you prefer. Here we go. How many of you are familiar with the term, a crisis of faith? See some heads nodding? <laughs> Get a little more personal. How many of you have experienced a crisis of faith? Okay. More personal still. How many of you, and again, you can just answer to yourself if you'd prefer. How many of you have experienced one such crisis recently or perhaps even presently today? You're in the midst of it. Thank you. And then how many of you aren't sure? (laughs) And I ask these things because... I want you to know that you're not alone. And because I want you to keep this in mind as we consider Jonah and his faith. As chapter 1 nears its end, because of his disobedience, Jonah is hurled into the sea. God provides a way of rescue by way of a great fish. And chapter 2 details Jonah's response from the belly of that fish. Now, Here's what we have to recognize. This is a critical moment for Jonah. This is a turning point. This is what we would call a crisis of faith. And a takeaway, I think, for us this morning is this. Because because the Lord is God, and because God is faithful... You can face your crisis without losing your faith. Okay? Because the Lord is God and because God is faithful, you can face your crisis. Even today, those of you who are in one such crisis, you can face your crisis without losing your faith. So let's read this together. Jonah chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 17 of chapter 1 and then through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments we share yet again this morning on this Lord's Day in this passage of this, your word. And what we need more than anything else, what we need right now in these moments is we need to hear your voice. We need to feel your touch. We need to know and believe that you are with us and that you are working all things for the good. We are a people in crisis, some even today, certainly some recently or in times past, and there is more crisis still to come. And so will you please descend upon us, Lord, in your goodness and in your grace. Will you please walk among us? Will you please tend to us and shepherd your sheep even in these moments? As we incline our heads and our hearts toward the truth of your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, when talking about a crisis of faith, we're getting, we're getting to the heart of what it means to trust God. And trust is not always easy to exercise. You know, trust is like patience. In that the only way to learn patience is to be put into situations where your patience are tested where your patience is tested. You cannot learn patience by reading about it. Same with trust. You do not learn how to trust from a book. As much as we read about trust, even in this book, as much as we talk about trust, as much as we desire to trust, trust only grows when it's tested. And it's in those times of testing, those are the times we're referring to when we're talking about a crisis of faith. It's when we come to those pivotal moments in our life when events cause us to question whether we can go on or even want to. And the causes for such crises are as varied as our individual experiences. It could be the loss of a job, for example, or the loss of a loved one, or the slow or sudden loss of good health. It could be a relational breakup 
or other relational challenges within your circle of family and friends or uh, others in your peer group. Maybe it's the pursuit of a dream that never comes true or a prayer that appears to go unanswered for months and years on end or in the realization that, that what you truly want to live for means leaving so much behind. The soul that knows nothing of the anxieties and anguish that comes with a faith that's being tested simply cannot relate. But those who have experienced such things, who've been, in the, who've been refined in the fires of testing, have come through them with a deeper understanding of the character of God, and thus they have a deeper, more genuine trust in God. Take Abraham, for example. The Bible refers to Abraham as the father of faith, right? But why? We know that God called Abraham to leave his country and kindred, to go to a foreign land, to a place he did not know. We know that God promised to bless him and to make him a blessing to others, including all the families of the earth. We know that God assured Abraham of a son, an heir through whom his offspring would outnumber the stars in the heavens and the sand on the shore. And we know that Abraham trusted God, although his circumstances suggested otherwise. By faith, Abraham obeyed, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. He didn't know where God was leading. He didn't know how God would provide He didn't know through whom God's promise would be fulfilled. He was an old man. Twice the Bible says that his body, twice the Bible says that his body was as good as dead. How's that for honest assessment? His wife, Sarah, was barren and well beyond her childbearing years. In hindsight, we celebrate Abraham's faith for good reason, But as the events were unfolding in real time, make no mistake, he was facing a crisis of faith. In hope, he believed against hope, we're told in Romans chapter 4. In other words, he was clinging to hope even as everything around him appeared hopeless you see when the road of worldly wisdom intersects with the path of godward faith that's the point of crisis those are the moments when we're faced with the question will i trust in my understanding of my circumstances or will i place my trust in god it's when the rubber of your faith meets the road of real life. As we see him in chapter 2, Jonah comes to that exact intersection. From From the bleak assessment of his situation, to the awareness of his God, to the expression of his soul's collapse, Jonah is at the point of crisis. Verses 1 and 2 describe the situation as Jonah found himself in the belly of a great fish, what he called the belly of Sheol. Sheol was a way of talking about death, about the grave. 
To the ancient Hebrews, it was a place where the dead reside. It was the underworld and all that it represents. So Jonah's situation was very bleak, and he knew it. He was near death, and he was deeply distressed. But please notice in verse 3 how he attributes this to God. To God, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, we know, we know the sailors had thrown Jonah overboard, but Jonah saw the, God, the hand of God at work. As far as he was concerned, it was God who cast him into the deep. And God's chastisement was thorough and effective, coming in wave after wave and billow after billow. Now, it's not saying that every trial and tragedy is from God, necessarily. Rather, Jonah is recognizing that God allows us to experience the natural consequences of our own disobedience. So that we might learn and grow, God will not always prevent bad outcomes. And in this way, those waves and billows are attributed to Him. Any parent who's ever disciplined his or her children knows what this is like. You know, I don't enjoy reprimanding my children. I'll just get that out there. I don't enjoy it. Quite the opposite, actually. Disciplining my kids takes a toll on me. I see some parents nodding their heads. It means that I have to be reasonable with my expectations and very clear in stating them. It means dealing with disappointment when my children don't meet my expectations. It means watching sin prevail over my own child in the moments of their disobedience. That's not fun. It means caring enough to not allow sin to have the upper hand. It means being interrupted from what I'm doing or what I want to do to instead follow through on the necessary consequence. It means making sure that the consequence I levy fits the transgression, neither too soft nor too severe. It means bringing a degree of pain and sadness to my child to the point where they may come to tears. Which breaks my heart as much much or more. And for me, all of this is multiplied by five because I have five children. So like most parents, I derive no pleasure whatsoever in disciplining my children, but because I love them and because they need discipline at times, I do my best to help them. And I am an imperfect father at best. As with Jonah, 
It was the discipline, the discipline of the Lord is for our good, and He is the perfect Father. It's an act of love. Proverbs 3 makes clear, My child, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves the one He loves. As a father, the son in whom He delights. Still, the Bible is honest in saying that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And that's where Jonah was when in the belly of the fish, giving voice to exactly what he was thinking and feeling. And I want you to try to put yourself there. In verse 4, he mentions being driven from God's sight, as if banished. In verse 5, he feels enveloped by death as the waters close in and the weeds constrict around his head. In, in verse 6, he is utterly hopeless. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, he says, as if resigning himself to eternal imprisonment and demise. And in verse 7, he describes his life as fainting away. Literally, it pictures his soul folding up and collapsing upon itself. Now, you ever been there? Ever felt banished? As if God couldn't see you anymore? Or didn't want to? Ever since the events of life closing in to consume you? Ever been tempted to resign yourself to what seems like inevitable despair? Has your soul ever been on the verge of collapse? If you said yes to any of these questions, then you know what it's like to face a crisis of faith, to be at that intersection where you either believe or you bail. And thankfully, the fact you're here today means you didn't bail. And neither did Jonah. So, given that we all face these moments when we either give in to doubt or grow in trust, how are we to deal with our varied crises of faith? What are some practical steps to take to that foster faith when doing so seems impossible? What are, what are just some practical things to do even when doing those things seem near impossible? And I see from Jonah, I find four specific actions that I think prove very, very helpful. The first is this. Call upon God as if He's all you have left. Call upon God as if He's all you have left. Now, none of us is entirely alone, thankfully. We have family and friends to support us through tough times. We have a church. We have a community of faith, a church family, which God has provided to help comfort us and counsel us along the way. But isn't it true that sometimes we go to others before going to God? And what I'm saying and what Jonah demonstrates is that when we're in the thick of it, we should cry out to God as if He's all we've got. 
In other words, don't ever shy away from desperate prayers. Now, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. You know, sometimes, I know I'm guilty of this, and listen, I've prayed with people enough to know that others are guilty of this too. Sometimes we try packaging our prayers in ways that appear proper and more acceptable and more spiritual. But desperate prayers, desperate prayers, desperate prayers are rarely neat and tidy. Desperate prayers typically don't begin in the head as we try to prepackage our thoughts. They emerge from the heart, from the depths of a soul in agony. Desperate prayers do not shy away from honest lament. The person who prays desperately knows she's at the end of the road, she's at the end of herself, and she therefore lets it all hang out as if she has nothing to lose. The Bible offers many examples of desperate prayers. Most notably, Jesus Christ. So desperate was Jesus on the night prior to his death, he gathered a few of his closest friends to pray for him. So desperate was he, he fell to the ground in a heap, unable to stand and support his own weight. So desperate, he began to sweat in prayer, and the beads of sweat became like blood. Now, I have never exerted so much energy in prayer that I began sweating, much less bleeding. So desperate was Jesus on that terrible night, he even asked God the Father for another way, for an alternative, for another means of securing our redemption. Now, he knew, he knew, right? He knew there was no other way, but that did not squelch the desperation of the moment. Jonah was desperate, and he knew that God was all he had left. And out of his distress, he cried. You can almost hear the anguish in his voice and feel the ache in his soul. He knew God was aware and his desperation was met with answers from above. I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, reads verse 2, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. When facing a crisis of faith, Give voice to your desperation. Believe that God hears, that He wants to hear, and that His love is steadfast. Verse 8. Please hear this. Do not worry about having a nice conversation with God, but rather an honest one. Don't sugarcoat it or over-spiritualize it. 
Tell him exactly what you're thinking, exactly what you're feeling, however unpleasant or unspiritual it may sound. Believe me, God can handle it, and the raw transparency will do you well. Number two, look forward to what God will do. Look forward to what God will do. I'm struck by the spirit of expectancy in Jonah's prayer, the expression of his hope recorded in verse 4. He says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The temple refers to God's presence. So as bad as things were at the time, get this, Jonah knew that better days awaited him. You know, such expectancy in prayer is possible only when trusting in the relationship we share with God. As a quick aside, I think sometimes we need to know that our disobedience to God is not only about our action or inaction, but also about the toll it takes on our ability to trust. How interesting that nearly every mention of the Lord in chapter 1, when Jonah was fleeing from the Lord, every mention of the Lord in chapter 1 is written in the third person and preceded by the article, The. But in chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the fish, or in the belly of Sheol, things become much more personal And he begins to refer to God as his own. He begins to lean on that relationship he shares with God. The chapter begins with Jonah praying to the Lord, his God. And later in verse verse 6, he says, O Lord, my God. Both statements suggest that Jonah, now realizing how far he'd strayed, again began to trust in his relationship with the Lord. And by doing so, he began to look forward to better days. In the NFL, any football fans here? In the NFL, one thing that separates an elite quarterback from the rest of the pack is his ability to keep his eyes downfield even when standing in the center of utter chaos while three or four or five and sometimes six or seven 300-pound men are breathing down his neck with the intent to squash him. His ability to see the whole field, not just the pocket that's collapsing around him, and trust in those who are protecting him makes a world of difference to his success or failure. And in the same way, when you're facing a crisis of faith, you must look not to the immediate situation only, but you must look forward to what's out there. 
Not to the seen things only, but even to the unseen. Things like your character that's becoming more Christ-like, or the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings, or the ways that God will take. Isn't this amazing how God does this? God will take your experiences and place you, providentially place you in, in other people's lives who are going through similar struggles. So that you can receive encouragement from them and be encouragement for them. Or the many promises of God that assure that none of these struggles are insignificant or purposeless. Sometimes it means just keeping your eyes on the hope of heaven itself. Lean upon your relationship with the Lord. Hope as Jonah did in what God will do and what it will mean for you when He does. That's number two. Number three. So number two is look forward to what God will do. Number three is look back to what God has done. Look again at verse seven. When Jonah was on the verge of collapse, what did he do? He says, my life is fainting away. Again, the picture there is that a soul that's just folding up, it's just shriveling and collapsing upon himself. So what did he do in that moment? He remembered the Lord. Now we have selective memories, many of us, all of us. And we tend to focus only on the bad to the neglect of the good. When life gets hard, we actually tend to fault God in some way while forgetting all that He's done up to that point. So here from Jonah, we're encouraged to remember these things and to bring to our recall, to, to bring to our remembrance the character of God and the kindness He's demonstrated time and time again. In a 2014 article on this very subject, Relevant uh, Magazine suggests that we approach our doubt as we would our jobs. And I appreciate the comparison. The author goes on to explain that this does not mean working harder to overcome doubt, but rather, quote, to treat your faith and your faith community as you would your job in the sense of not being too quick to quit. She mentions that even the best jobs, jobs we love, can leave us hurting and frustrated and confused at times. But if we pause to remember, they also provide for our needs. They foster friendship and reliance upon a larger community. They bring a welcome sense of purpose and direction. So just as we wouldn't necessarily give our two weeks notice when going through a rough patch at work, the same should go for our faith. When facing a crisis of faith, where the road ahead seems difficult, look back and remember the road already traveled. Basically, count your blessings. Remember what God has already done in and through your life to bring you where you are today how you have faced similar trials before and how he's always seen you through. And then fourth and finally, give thanks. 
always. There are times when you must preach to your own soul. Your soul is thinking and feeling one way and you must persuade it in the other direction. Your soul may want to pout or complain or throw itself a pity party. But you must not let it. As you remember all that God has done, you must exhort your soul to greater thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the antidote to complaining and pouting and pitying. That's what David does in Psalm 42 when he says to his soul, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Soul, hope in God. Or again, in Psalm 103, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's preaching to himself. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. In both instances, he was combating his proneness towards self-pity by urging his own soul to thank God for his many blessings. And that's what Jonah is doing in verse 9. He's saying that his worship of God above all will be marked by a spirit of thanksgiving. Now, most of us agree that thanking God is a good thing. I don't think anyone here would disagree with that statement. But here's what I want you to see. What makes this so impactful is that Jonah gives thanks while still in the belly of the fish. In other words, Jonah's circumstances have not changed one iota, and as far as he is concerned, they never will. The same situation that caused his distress at the beginning of his prayer is that which now prompts thanksgiving at the end. Isn't that amazing? So if his circumstance didn't change, what did? What changed was his view of his circumstance. And more importantly, his view of God. Perspective matters. When facing a crisis of faith, if all you see is what's going on around you, you're in big trouble. But if you can step back and see the larger view of things, the bigger picture then you will begin to notice the goodness of God. You'll begin to notice the good of God and other goodness of God in other parts of your life. And the more you see God's goodness in those areas, the more you'll begin to see that He is working good even in your present hardship. Give thanks 
in all circumstances, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Jonah made it through his crisis of faith. He called upon God desperately as if God was all he had left. He looked forward to what God will do. He leaned upon that relationship he shared with God. He looked back to what God has already done. And he expressed heartfelt thanks from a heart of earnest worship. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he declared in triumph. And so can we. So, because the Lord is God, and because God is faithful, you can face your crisis without losing your faith and in fact come through it as Jonah did with even greater faith. Call out to God as if He's all you got. Look forward at what He will do. Look back at what He's done and give thanks always. Amen. God, we thank you for these moments. Thank you for these dear people. Thank you for the way that you are working your truth in and through our lives. Please permeate the entirety of our beings with these things. For your name's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen.